Greetings. Uh, my name is Abbas Emiloni. I am joined by two of my dearest uh, colleagues at Stanford, uh, two of the most prominent scholars on democracy and transition to democracy, uh, Professor Larry Diamond, that uh, my colleague Mike McFall just called Mr. Democracy. Uh, he has been the founding editor of the Journal of Democracy, has written dozens of uh, seminal books on the question of democracy. My other colleague, uh, Professor Mike McFall, is the head of the FSI. He was uh, at one time US ambassador to uh, Russia. Uh, the three of us have the honor uh, of having worked together uh, for 22 years here at Stanford on the question of democracy. And we also have the honor of being called by the Iranian regime uh, as intelligent agents at the Hoover Institute, masterminding the uh, Green Revolution, which was absolutely false. And Mike McFall has been also uh, set to go from uh, Iran to Russia and masterminded the Russian democratic movement. So we have plenty of uh, remarkable scholarly and uh, practical experience. So I'm going to begin uh, with uh, Professor Diamond and ask what are the historical conditions one can see in a society that indicates it is ready for a transition to democracy? The first thing uh, to note, Abbas, is that there is a difference between a society being ready for a transition to democracy and um, a society being ready for democracy. Uh, as we've collaborated on our several books uh, and conferences, I think we've all agreed that Iran is ready for democracy. It has a very strong aspiration for freedom, constitutionalism. You've written about the long historical roots of that a rule of law, protection of civil liberties. And um, there are growing signs, they keep growing, of um, the overwhelming majority of the population not only having the education uh, to make for a successful democracy, but having the passionate desire for it. However, a society being ready for democracy is not the same thing as a society being ready for a transition to democracy, because that has to do with the power dynamics uh, surrounding the regime, uh, the authoritarian regime. And so there has to be some element of decay and division in the regime and some degree of strategy, organization, unity, and mobilization in the opposition in order for uh, the situation to be ripe for a democratic transition. Now, what we've seen, I think, uh, in the last few months is courageous uh, and really unprecedented uh, mobilization, uh, unseasoned. <clears throat> uh protests in the streets and so on the dilemma <clears throat> that i think iranian democrats find themselves in is that transitions to democracy as opposed to just destabilizing protests um requires some degree of organization leadership and strategy on the ground and there are some signs that that's been 
kind of taking form and congealing but um it's still a challenge and of course the regime is trying to arrest and even execute anyone uh who might represent a threat in that regard precisely because it doesn't want to hand over power we have to look carefully at the regime itself and whether there are divisions that are beginning to surface or become apparent uh within the power structures of the islamic republic um in the um you know in the in the ruling structures uh including the guardian council and so on that might um signal divisions and i'll just say finally mike is uh extremely uh sensitive to these kinds of issues and has written about them uh in his famous article on the color cover color revolutions which was published in the journal of democracy and was probably one of the reasons why vladimir putin was so upset about his being named ambassador to russia but um if there are defect defections in the security apparatus in uh, i think mike's favorite term is the guys with the guns um that's uh an indicator of ripeness for transition. Mike? I agree. <laughs> I think Larry's covered it all. Um, maybe just add a few things, but then I think we should hear about the way you see it with respect to what's going on inside Iran. Obviously, Larry and I follow events, but let me talk generally, and then you speak specifically, Abbas. Um, uh, a couple of things. One is there are multiple modalities to transition, right? There's not a one path. Uh, it happens in different ways. Uh, we used to believe, if you think about the third wave of democratization, there was a big literature, incredibly rich literature, that talked about the needs for one, a split in the Anshant regime, a split in the ruling order between hardliners and softliners. Um, and then they also talked about a split within society between radicals and moderates, um, and that in the ripe moments, the softliners in the autocratic regime would negotiate with the moderates and do what was called a pacted transition. Um, and there are lots of cases of that in, in history. Um, but that's not the only way we've seen democratic breakthrough. Um, in the former communist world, especially 1989, uh, there were beginnings of pacted transitions in Hungary and Poland, but then they got swept away in uh, elections which showed overwhelmingly that support was on the side of the democratic forces. And so the initial agreements, Poland in particular is very interesting, the roundtable agreement that, that carefully uh, traced all these little small steps. The first time there was uh, an election that showed where popular will was, uh, they got swept away. And then that led to the same thing happening in Czechoslovakia. So that, that was not a pacted transition. Romania was not a pacted transition. Um, and then, as, as Larry alluded to, uh, after those transitions in the communist world, the post-communist world, there was this phenomenon uh, that, that followed a somewhat different path. Uh, called color revolutions, although maybe that's an unfortunate name, but but they had a very specific set of preconditions or circumstances. 
uh, begins with Serbia in 2000, uh, the fall of Milosevic, then Georgia, the country of Georgia, 2003, uh, Orange Revolution in 2004, uh, and some people say the Green Revolution in 2009 in Iran. I'm going to let you comment on that. But what, what those three cases, and, and there are others, but those are the three really big seminal ones, what they had in common, um, number one, it was semi-autocratic regimes, not totalitarian regimes. Uh, there was space for civil society. There was space for independent political parties, space for independent media. Not a lot, but there was some. Um, number two, very critically, all of the leaders in those places ran elections. Uh, now, they weren't fair, free and fair, but they thought they could win elections with falsification. And it turned out that uh, society in all three of those places uh, exposed that falsification. And because of that falsified, uh, 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 exposing that falsification, mobilized mass movements against the sitting governments. And in all three cases, that eventually led to the fall of the old order and new elections. Um, and that also happened in Russia, by the way, in 2011, where parliamentary election occurred, it was falsified, and then there was massive demonstrations against, uh, initially against that falsified vote, but then eventually the slogan was uh, Russia without Putin. This is December 2011, the spring of 2012, right when I became U.S. ambassador, by the way. But you'll note, Russia's not a democracy today. Um, Serbia, Georgia, and Ukraine are all democracies uh, to varying degrees. There's been some backsliding, especially in Georgia, and Serbia has its own trouble. Why was there breakthrough in those uh, three cases, but not in Russia in 2011? Because the regime in Russia under Vladimir Putin uh, used force, arrested people, cracked down in a way that the guys with the guns, as Larry said, when push came to shove, especially in Serbia and Ukraine, when there are massive demonstrations on the street and they had to decide, are we going to try to suppress all these people? They, they didn't. One of the reasons they didn't was those demonstrations were too big. You can arrest 50 people. You can crack down on 5,000, even 10,000. But hundreds of thousands, it's impossible. Uh, and they had in Serbia and, and Ukraine especially had hundreds of thousands of people on the streets that just made it overwhelming for the, the Secret Service people or the military to go in and try to clear the square. That wasn't the case in Russia. The numbers were smaller and the guys with guns were a lot stronger. But, you know, the, you talked about the Green Revolution. Uh, I, I don't think that was in a sense a revolution uh, because what people wanted at the time was a free and fair election. Their slogan was, what happened to my vote? Right. And the person who led that, Mr. Musavi, who's now been in prison for 11 years, uh, didn't want to challenge the status quo. Right. But that same Mr. Musavi has just issued a statement saying that this regime is finished, we need a new social contract, we need a referendum. So is that the kind of a crack that is significant? Uh, and there are other signs of crack, but the guys at the gun, I have never seen yet uh, the sign that they're uh, having any doubt in uh, busting bones and arresting and killing people in the street. Well, let me say um, that, yes, I think the Green Movement was a movement, not a revolution, because it didn't succeed in displacing uh, the regime. But um, 
I think Mike is absolutely right. It had all of the properties of the other color revolutions, but Musavi did not behave like Yushchenko did, and maybe they wouldn't in the end have prevailed anyway. So um, I know that this conference, Abbas, is passionately aspiring for democratic change in in Iran, and we all are. Um, We've had, you know, it's coming on 50 years of the Islamic Republic by the end of this decade, and that's, you know, already uh, way too much oppression and suffering. But I think we have to face the fact that unless the regime simply disintegrates for lack of resources, unlikely given the oil revenues, um, it's going to take some kind of crack in the establishment uh, to um, to bring about democratic change. And so I think the opposition, the democratic opposition, uh, needs both a strategy for sustained mobilization and a strategy for somehow engaging elements of the regime and opening a dialogue of what their life would be like in a new political order and why they and everybody else would be better off. And that's very difficult to do, but the more international pressure we have on the regime, the more propitious will be the conditions for trying to achieve that. Can I add a little bit to that? Because I think it's an important point that is frequently forgotten in the cases I know well, uh, which is that the pacted transitions, sometimes you do deals with the devil, right? And so they were all deals with very nasty people. Think of the apartheid regime in South Africa. F.W. de Klerk, you know, he's from the apartheid regime, and yet he did a deal. Not because he wanted to, because he was forced to. Uh, but then, two in the color revolutions, um, and I would even add uh, to the, the revolution against the Soviet Union within Russia that brought down the Soviet Union, in all of those instances, the leader that emerged uh, initially was part of the old regime. So um, it can happen both ways. So Yeltsin, a former Politburo member or candidate member, cast aside, creates a wedge, gets elected, takes on the Soviets, and then, by the way, when the guys with the guns were ordered to storm the White House where he was, they didn't do that, right? And, and he, he, he said, come on our side. Um, Milosevic, uh, one of the leaders of the opposition there was Jinjic, uh, another member of the government before split with them. Yushchenko, uh, well, I skipped over Saakashvili. Saakashvili was a member of the Shevardnadze regime before he led the Georgian revolution. And Yushchenko, was also a member of the old order before he split. It doesn't have to be that way, but sometimes those are the figures that can be the bridge between uh, those that you want to pull away from the regime uh, and elements of civil society. Uh, uh, I think uh, very, and Mike, the purpose of this conference is precisely to think about some of these issues. I think one of the reasons the past efforts at transition to democracy failed in Iran is because no one had really thought about what happens next. They say, let's overthrow this regime. Whatever comes will be better. 
now I think people inside Iran and outside Iran have recognized that that's not necessarily the case. You can get rid of a regime and get something worse. So there is a level of a serious effort to think through and see what is it required, how do we go about it. And one of the things that I think is new uh, is the Iranian diaspora, which is now about 10% of the population. Uh, and 10%? About 10% wow. of the population. It's a big number. It's a big number. There's about 7 to 8 million people outside. And some of them are very successful. Some of them have been very uh, accomplished in the fight for democracy in, or entrepreneurship. What role can diasporas have in your uh, observations about transition uh, in, uh, in a comparative base? Well, <clears throat> money, ideas, resources, uh, inspiration, uh, and diasporas can certainly and do lobby their own governments uh, to ramp up the pressure in the regime uh, and to support uh, democratic forces. I think, um, you know, one of the areas of uh, President Obama's foreign policy, Mike, you could comment on this if you wish, where he might wish that he'd done something differently and um, I think has said, uh, if he had a second opportunity, he might do it differently, was the Green Movement in 1979. And in that case, I think President Obama took a tactical decision out of sympathy that if the United States had come down too forcefully on the side of the Green Movement, it might have um, enabled the regime to depict the Green Movement as an instrument of American interference. But it's hard to imagine how the Green Movement could have come out in the end worse than it did. So maybe if we'd had um, a more vigorous policy of allied pressure um, uh, from both the EU and the United States to really um, embrace the movement and um, more intensely sanction the regime, uh, it might have made a difference. But um, these kinds of movements, they need innovative technological tools. They need to know that we care uh, and that we're mobilizing. Mike can say much more about this, but I think Ukraine, this is not an exact parallel, obviously, but in its struggle against the horror of Russian uh, uh, aggression has, has been aided not only by the flows of weapons and money, but by the flows of international sympathy and solidarity, including in informal and also in informal uh, settings. So I think the diaspora can um, can mobilize all of these things and raise international consciousness, solidarity, resolve, and practical assistance flows. We've got to figure out ways to provide more concrete and innovative assistance, and if we can, protection to people on the ground. And one final thing, um, I do think there's a need 
to report on what's happening on the ground and beam that back to people in the country. I think a lot has been going on in this regard, but that requires money for independent media and exile. And once again, uh, the diaspora, I think, has been uh, helping in that regard and can probably do even more. So just to add a few things, um, uh, diasporas and movements uh, for democracy have played giant roles in many other countries. Uh, the case I know the best is South Africa, yeah. where you had for decades uh, a di diaspora, people living in exile, the ANC, but not only, uh, and they played an instrumental role in mobilizing the international community to put pressure on the regime with regard to sanctions. And, and I think that was very uh, instrumental in putting pressure on the regime. And the Anti-Apartheid Act of 1986, I remembered it because I protested uh, for that legislation. Um, uh, I remember very vividly going to meetings with leaders of the ANC in San Francisco and elsewhere uh, as a kind of transnational movement to put pressure on the regime. So I think that's a good lesson. And, and with the power and influence that the Iranian diaspora has even more. Way, they have way more power than the ANC had uh, back then. Uh, the, the difference was South Africa was more exposed to the international community uh, than the Iranian regime is, tragically. But, but I think that's one thing. Second, uh, remember, it's a balance of power struggle. All of these things are not, it's not an engineering problem. It is a fight. It's a balance of power between those in, the autocrats in power and the Democrats uh, on the ground. And so as you want to weaken the people in power through things like sanction, you want to strengthen the democratic forces. And, and people on the outside can do both at the same time and provide that. Uh, and I, I, I do think it's very important uh, what Larry said, just sometimes symbolically doing that uh, can matter a lot uh, to people inside the country. Uh, I work with diasporas from Russia, from Belarus, and in interacting back and forth with Ukrainians every day. And I can't tell you how important it is for them to know that they haven't been forgotten, especially the Belarusians and the Russians, where to most people it seems like Putin has crushed the opposition. Uh, communicating to them, sending messages of solidarity uh, matters a great deal to them, especially those that are in jail. Um, and I think even doing symbolic acts of Congresses uh, on the outside where the diaspora comes together. Uh, it's always dangerous, it's always tricky, I understand. Uh, but, but, but signaling that there is growing support on the outside for the regime to change. Um, and the other thing I would say, again, this is the hard lesson, but it's an important lesson from uh, other transitions, that, that uh, sometimes it's also a necessary condition to make democracy safe for those that have secured their property rights in the old regime. Uh, and, and this very famous book by our colleague, uh, Philippe Schmitter and uh, Guillermo O'Donnell, I, I still can remember the quote, Larry, it's a, a book about transitions. You cannot checkmate, uh, you can't seize the property rights. You have to be able to figure out a way to protect them in some ways so that they can flip without going to jail, without losing their businesses. Uh, and of course, 
Uh, nobody knows that better than those that endured the Iranian revolution, than those that lost their fortunes and their property. Well, you need to reduce this, the, the cost of the transition. South Africa is another excellent example to make it safe for democracy so that you split, uh, especially the property owners, the business community from the political, you know, from the mullahs, from the theocrats in power. But I think there is one uh, small difference. No, I think there's many differences. No, no, that no, Iran's a very complicated difference. place. No, no, uh, in terms of diaspora. And I want to seek your advice on how we as a diaspora can confront this. The Iranian Me Too movement, I've talked with you, I've talked to uh, Larry about this. I think it's one of the most remarkable women movements in our modern times. Yes. Uh, if you remember, I asked both of you whether you know a national movement led by a woman. But most feminists in America, uh, many feminists in America, many feminists in Europe did not come to the support of this movement. Yes. Uh, moreover, apartheid didn't have the soft power and the sharp power that the Islamic Republic has created for itself in academia, in the media, in pseudo-intellectuals, uh, in politics of fear. Nobody dared defend apartheid in 1987, I think. You were involved in the fight. I was in Iran at the time. But now the regime has all of these insidious uh, hands here. How do you fight this and cohere into a cogent message? Abbas, um, I wonder if that's true today after this courageous mobilization of these young people, especially women, and um, after the obvious and widespread brutality of the regime in responding, I, I sense, I could be wrong, uh, that the number of people willing to stand up for the regime and say we should be dealing with it like a normal country uh, and it isn't that bad, and it has domestic support, that um, the number of people who take that view and are willing to state it publicly has dramatically declined. And I don't have the least bit of um, hesitation in saying to uh, anyone who would take that position, you should be ashamed of yourself. Uh, and um, this is uh, morally unacceptable. It's like defending apartheid, and therefore it's not that far from defending slavery. So I would add a couple of things. Um, I think your observation about the women's movement and the transnational women's movement is a really important one uh, because there's been solidarity on Twitter and TikTok and things like that but an integrated strategy uh, to, to, to genuinely get um, you know, women's organizations in the United States and Europe to engage with women leaders in, in Iran, I think is a really good strategy. And that's another difference from South Africa. South Africa had two big pluses. One, they had an African-American community inside the United States that had a particular affinity with their fight. So the fight for civil rights in the South and the fight against apartheid was one. And they had all kinds of conferences and all kinds of training programs where they got together uh, to learn uh, techniques together. 
that I think is a, that's a really interesting avenue to bring that together because my sense is solidarity, but not real engagement uh, from the external women's movements. And there should be more, there should, there's no excuse for that. I think that's a really uh, a great idea. The other thing, thinking about the South African case and the diaspora that is radically different is by the time you got to the end of apartheid, uh, most of their neighbors and most of the continent was against them, right? They were isolated in their own neighborhood. Uh, that's not true in the Middle East. Uh, and that, that afforded the ANC. The ANC were located in Zimbabwe. They were located in uh, Zambia. Uh, you know, the, the Angolans were fighting the apartheid regime in Namibia, right? Literally fighting a, a war against the South Africans uh, for their independence, supporting them. Uh, and fighting in southern Angola, that Iran, uh, the Iranian diaspora doesn't have that luxury. Um, and I just, I would note that that's another difference, a bigger challenge. On the sharp power thing, that, that I hadn't thought about that. I had Larry's observation. Actually, I want, I want to hear your response to Larry's because to me it seems so obvious. But I'll bet you if you dig a little deeper uh, in other countries, Iranian sharp power actually does have uh, influences that uh, we may not be aware of. Uh, I think if there was in South Africa uh, at that time a movement as powerful, uh, as brave and defiant as the Me Too movement, I don't think there would have been a single major university in America that wouldn't have had a conference about it, that wouldn't have had demonstrations about it. But you Great look point. around, look around, and look at some of the major universities in this country, you will be surprised how few, how few, not how many, how few have dared organize a single event in the defense of this movement. I can say with some certainty, Stanford is the only one that has, and we have done this for the last 20 years, and you, the two of you, have been a pillar of support. Now, I'm not tarofing, as we say in uh, Iran. If you've been able to do this, it's been because your presence, because your gravitas at this uh, university. But look around. Look at the other major universities that claim to be bastions of liberal democracy, bastions of a scholarship. Where are they? What is the comp where is the conference on Me Too movement? You want to criticize it, come and criticize it. Have the guts to come and criticize it. Look at Princeton, look at Harvard, look at Yale, look at Chicago, look at UCLA, look at Berkeley. Silence. Where does that come from? Part of it is intimidation. Part of it is that, I think, soft and sharp power that the regime has. Interesting. I didn't know that. Well, uh, uh, now we know. Yeah, now we know. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> uh, one other footnote on this, because it's it's on the same theme, the the theme of unity, uh, both within the opposition and between the diaspora and those on the ground. Uh, it's really hard to do. I've I've seen. I right now I'm in uh, a series of of difficult conversations with the Russian opposition and the diaspora and the Belarusian opposition and the diaspora uh, that don't have nearly the, the, you know, the, the wealth and numbers that the Iranian opposition has, so uh, diaspora has. But, but when they're fighting amongst themselves, 
that that's good for the regime and how to figure out a way to keep everybody on the same page to realize we have one enemy now uh, we can settle out we can argue about our differences later but until we get rid of that one regime that that one enemy now we have to figure out a way to cooperate all of those other cases I talked about had that same th those same problems right and when they finally came together Poland's a great example of a case that you know they 56 68 76 there were splits and it wasn't enough and then they finally came together in solidarity uh 80 81 and it still wasn't enough because the, the guys with the guns were too powerful and then they got one more chance in 89 and they kept it together uh to push the regime out and now they're divided they're having you know what i would call normal politics although poland's a little creeping in ways that make me nervous but now they have politics based on liberals and social democrats and that's fine but in the in the fight against the autocratic regime uh unity matters a lot uh, so as a last question both of you have written about trends uh, of democracy uh, ascending trends for democracy descending trends waves and how that has impacted individual democratic movements at what is this moment in terms of your vision about future? Is the great trends helping us in Iran go towards democracy, or is it now? Are we now in a recess, or uh, uh, you you have a term for it, uh, uh, the decline in, huh? A global democratic recession. Recession. I think we are in a moment of possibilities because it is not only Iran where people are clearly disenchanted uh, with their authoritarian rulers. Um, uh, an even higher percentage, Abbas, of the Venezuelan population is now in exile. It's about 20%. Um, you saw what happened in, Ch in China with the uh, blank paper, or white paper movement against the zero COVID lockdown. And China still is in a pretty serious economic recession, and there's new disenchantment with the regime as a result of um, not only its stifling of freedom in every direction, but really its colossal mismanagement of the COVID epidemic. Um, Putin uh, has managed to uh, ruthlessly suppress all of the anti-war protests might could say more about this but you know uh, a lot of people have left russia to escape having to fight his miserable uh, morally bankrupt war and you can point to other authoritarian regimes uh, in ethiopia where um you know abi ahmed is trying to figure out how to hang on in Sudan, where the people keep mobilizing uh, for democratic change and the military can't figure out really how to hang on. So there is, um, despite a lot of the continuing uh, encroachment on democratic and constitutional norms that are going on in places, well, continuing to go on in Hungary and Poland, now in Israel, uh, and also in Tunisia, not that they're all at the same level. But there is this um, 
ferment among civil societies for democratic change. And I think something potentially very significant is going to happen this year that might give another boost to the um, democratic movement in Iran. Uh, Turkey is going to have to have elections this year. And after uh, 20 years of at least Islamic leaning uh, government under uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and the AKP in Turkey, um, I think if there's anything close to a free and fair election, uh, Erdogan is going to lose and the Democrats are going to come to power. And um, uh, he may try and steal it, but I think a color-type revolution in those circumstances would be much more likely to succeed in Turkey because it all, has literally all of the conditions that Mike laid out in his article, I think every single one of them. And so if there were to be a transition back to democracy in Turkey, I mean, it's right there, you know, in the neighborhood. Um, maybe that would um, reignite momentum for democratic uh, change in Iran. I would just add to that list, Ukraine. If, remember, not, I'm not saying remember to you, I'm saying it to our audience. Uh, the Iran, the, the theocrats in Iran and Putin are not just ideologically and, and culturally, uh, they've been aligned for a long time. Now they are aligned in a war. Uh, Iran is one of two countries in the world so far that is providing weapons to Russia to kill Ukrainians. They're, they're lock stop together, right? So, and, and Putin has supported the theocrats for, for a long, long time as well, right? It's the, the autocratic international, I think you called it Abbas uh, recently. Um, so what could be better externally for small D Democrats in Iran than the defeat of Putin? Uh, and I think it's the, the case for small D Democrats all over the world. Uh, and that's why I think this year is critical if, a, if Ukraine can push back, win the counteroffensive, uh, demonstrate that they are defeating Putin. It's not just a defeat on the battlefield, it's a democracy defeating an autocracy. It's the free world pushing back on one of the leaders of the autocratic world. And I think that could have profound, very positive consequences for the, the, the weakness of the Iranian regime and the strengthening in terms of solidarity, if nothing else, of, of the Iranian uh, democracy. But the converse is also true. If Putin wins in Ukraine, that's gonna embolden the mullahs in Iran and broadly more speaking, I would say in the Middle East, it's going to embolden Xi Jinping uh, and it's going to feel like the Democrats are in retreat, the democratic ideas, the democratic countries. So I think the stakes are super, super high. Uh, what happens in Ukraine, I think, has big consequences for anybody that believes in democracy, including those fighting for democracy inside Iran. And what that's the last point, what happens in Iran, if you look at the last 120 years history of the Middle East, what happens in Iran uh, does not stay in Iran. It spreads throughout the Middle East. Iran has been a bellwether state from nationalism to democracy to authoritarianism to pseudo-totalitarian Islamism, and now hopefully to democracy. If we get Iran to become democratic, I think 
the Middle East will be a different place. Well, just to footstomp that, uh, there's not enough discussion in the United States government or in our society about why it's in America's national security interest to support Iran, democracy in Iran. Uh, it would be a giant change in terms of, we're not in a great place in the Middle East right now, my country, as far as our country. I don't think we're, our stakes are very good right now. We need a breakthrough. We need a game changer to really alter everything. What And the thing that can do that would be a democratic breakthrough in Iran. So let's say you don't care about all the things we care about. Let's say you just care about American strategic interests, kind of, you know, cold realpolitik. There's nothing that would strengthen our position in the Middle East, vis-a-vis -vis China, vis-a-vis -vis Russia, than democratic breakthrough in Iran. And, uh, to the last point, Larry, you made about 2009, uh, Mike, uh, was very much privy to all the things you and I uh, wrote to Mike about the need for a more forceful defense of the Green Movement. And it was one battle, I think, that uh, Mike lost at the time. Uh, but Not one. I lost a lot of battles. <laughs> but uh, by the way, you said one footnote. You said then Mike went from Iran to Russia to foment the revolution. I don't know if you know this gentleman, but I actually did fly one time from Tehran to Moscow. Uh, it was my only time I was in Iran and I was on my way to Moscow. Uh, so I actually did one time fly there. Uh, but the night I arrived in Moscow was the night that Mikhail Khodorkovsky was arrested by Vladimir Putin. So it was the exact opposite of what people have accused me of. Yes, but actually both in Iran and in Russian media, they wrote an article saying that you went from Tehran to Russia to uh, overthrow Putin. So, uh, gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for accepting uh, our invitation. For, for everything you do, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure working with both of you. I can't uh, thank you enough. Thank you. And our work is not done. Absolutely. All right, great Till conversation. Gentlemen. Khodafes. Bye-bye. Thank you, Larry.